Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 11 of the North Meet South web podcast. Well, Michael, it is official. We are in a committed relationship. Do you know how I know this? <laughs> Tell me. Explain. You showed a screenshot in a Slack channel the other day, maybe today, yesterday maybe, of your Apple Watch <laughs> face, and you have my time. You have Chicago time on your watch, and now <laughs> I as well have Adelaide time on my watch. It is 6.31 a.m. Adelaide time. Is that correct? It is indeed. See? Look at this. Dude, this is... This is good and bad, right? It's good and bad. I, I don't need any more committed <laughs> relationships in my life. It's hard enough. <laughs> one 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 can be a bit tricky sometimes. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm I'm glad. So it does make it a lot easier though, man, to have it right on my watch because it can be difficult yeah. sometimes trying to figure out what time it is over there. So it's good to know. Good to know. So Yeah, why didn't why didn't we do this sooner? I know, right? Good good question. Well, we're going to try and make this week's episode a little bit shorter than uh, last week's episode. Last week, we went over what we normally do, which is totally fine. Had a guest, Adam Wathen on. It was really good talking to him. But uh, I think we're going to keep things uh, brief this week. So let's jump right into it. Michael, Mm -hmm. I saw on Twitter this morning, uh, you posted a photo of yourself at your local, um, I think it's South Australia meetup. Yeah, PHP Adelaide. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So Kind of the first thing I wanted to talk about today is, number one, I don't have a PHP meetup group here in Bloomington Mm -hmm. Normal, where I'm from. And I know that you guys just very recently started that group, and I know that you're one of the kind of leaders of the group there. So what was kind of like your experience getting that started? What were some of the steps you took to get people interested? It looked like you had a pretty decent crowd Mm -hmm. there in the photos that I looked at. So I wonder if you might want to just talk a little bit about how you guys got that started and how it's been going. Sure. Yeah, cool. Um, Well... I've, I mean, I've wanted to do it for, for quite some time and there, we have like a port 80 meetup here. Um, and one of the folks that actually came out to the, the Adelaide PHP meetup on, on Thursday said that he'd been to that meetup once and it was, it was kind of three people and they were all Rubyists and then it was two people and then it was sort of just the organizer. So it fizzed out a bit. Um, but I've been listening to Cal Evans talk. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. him. Yep. He does um, the Voices of the Elephant podcast. And um, I've been listening to that podcast for, I don't know, two years or so. And he's always talking about Nomad PHP. And then he's talking about if you don't have a local meetup, you should start one. And I always like the idea of it. But I think a lot of the problem that we have in, in Adelaide is the isolation of the developers. In places like Melbourne and Sydney, I think a lot more of those people sort of freelance and they get out and they meet other developers and things like that. Whereas here, it seems that people are more sort of full-time employees. So they don't really, you know, you don't really look and see what other companies are doing. You sort of go to work, you do your nine to five and then you go home. Um, But after getting involved with a lot of the guys from Melbourne and Sydney, after going to PHP Australia earlier in the year, um, I was sort of sitting in their Slack channel and someone came in and said, is there any PHP developers in Adelaide? And I thought, yep, that's me. And he was pretty keen to get a meetup started. And I was, as I said, been wanting to do it for quite some time. So, um, you know, we set up a Facebook group and we started 
sort of using that as a means to contact other developers through some of the other um, sort of developer-focused groups that we were involved in, um, you know, just spamming out on Twitter, getting getting word of mouth around. Um, in that time where I work, I went from being the sole developer to having three other developers, so that, that kind of made it easier to start a group having some people that I knew, and then, of course, they knew some people. So our first meetup was back in June, um, and it was basically just me and one of the other guys, Andrew, Sam, and Jason. Um, and they were just the guys from work, basically. So we went down to the pub and we just sat down and had a chat about what it, you know, what 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 our thoughts were in terms of getting a meetup going. We wanted to sort of talk about how we'd run the the events, where we'd run the events, um, and then the second event that we had was basically at that same pub and just we put out the message: whoever wants to come, please come. And we had probably, I think, a couple of other people there. Um, but the next meetup, I reckon, which was the week before I went to Laracon, we had it at a different location. It was closer to the city. Um, and I think we had probably about 15 people turn up to that first one, which I thought wow. was really good. Yeah. Um, and um, so, you know, they, they all came out. And it was just a, you know, we had a pub meal. We had a bit of a chat, got a bit, got to know each other a little bit. The next meetup was at the same pub. We had a few less people, but a few different faces as well. Um, and at, at that point we sort of thought, okay, we'll jump on meetup.com and we'll sort of do, you know, we'll sink a bit of money into it and see if we can get, um, a bit more activity out of it. And, um, yeah, so we had, unfortunately the meeting was actually supposed to be last Thursday, but because I was sick, um, one of the other organizers was away in Brisbane and the other one couldn't make it. Uh, it was kind of, you know, as you said to me last week, it was a perfect storm of things going wrong. So yeah. we actually had to cancel and postpone it um, until this week. So we may have lost a few people there. We ended up having, I think, 25 RSVP. And of the 25, we had 13 on the night. Okay. Um, That's pretty good. Which, I mean, I guess from what I've heard, you can expect from people RSVPing on Meetup. Um, it may have been that, that they didn't see the message that it had been postponed or whatever. So, um, yeah, it was a really good Meetup. Um, we got a good mix, I think, of different skill levels. We had two or three people, I think, that had um, no programming skill at all. They were just there because they were interested in programming, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think one of them was a medical student. One of them was working in finance. So, yeah, just it was nice. And I think then, because when I was building my talk, we, we put out a call for speakers and no one put their hand up. And it was sort of down to myself and the other two organizers just looking at each other going, so, you know, when are you... When are you going to do it? You know, who was going to break first? Right, right. Um, so it ended up being me. And I thought, you know, it's going to be really important just to really gauge the skill level of the group. Um, so I gave the first talk and my talk was on developing web applications. And it was just, a, I think, a gentle intro into the different ways that we can actually develop applications as, as PHP developers. So it was looking at, using the built-in PHP server. It was looking at things like Laravel Valet and virtual machines with Vagrant and VMware and then looking at Homestead and then brushing very, very quickly scratching the surface of using Docker because uh, that, yeah. that's really starting to pick up steam now. Um, a lot of, we've got a, basically a whole platform at work that's built on it. I play around with it a bit at home, but I don't really understand it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think many people really understand Docker because 
in my opinion, Docker does not do a very good job of explaining itself. If you go to their website, it's, it's just, it doesn't make much sense to me at all. So, Yeah, I have a very, very, very basic understanding of what it is. Um, it seems pretty powerful for the sorts of people who would need it, right? I, I feel like um, the types of people who are going to use that are going to be like enterprisey sort of people who need some uh, horsepower or need to be able to um, move stuff around uh, or spin up new new machines quickly. Uh, or using some sort yeah. of API, something like that. That's kind of the impression I got from what I've learned of it. Uh, but I mean, yeah, pretty cool technology. I, I don't know a ton about it, but it's uh, pretty neat. So, I think scalability is probably one of like the real key things. Uh, yeah. It makes it very easy to have lots of containers running um, and, and being able to spin them up and down in literally seconds. So if you start to get under load, say, for example, if you're a Laravel news and there's a, a Laracon on, you could go from, um, you know, one container to 10 containers and just basically gracefully handle that load without any issues. So, yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, your cost would go up for that period of time, but then you start as the load drops away, you start pulling um, containerized instances out of your load balancer. And then obviously you will then um, reduce the cost after that. Right. Uh, so it really is a flexible way of, of sort of spinning up and down instances. Um, I remember a couple that's, of years ago. That's one of the main things for me, but th- um, there's heaps to it. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, um, I was at a uh, conference called CodeMash, and Netflix was there, uh, the engineers from Netflix, and they were talking a lot about dynamically changing or spinning up servers based on what their load was. Uh, and yeah. it was pretty pretty interesting, some of the stuff they are talking about. They said they had like a process that would kind of go in and just randomly remove containers or remove, you know, mm-hmm. instances of servers and just they would they would do that to see how they're see what uh, happened. You know, yeah. yeah, see what happened, see how they how they recovered or, you know, how error handling was being done or whatever. So that was that was kind of cool. Um, but this was your first talk as I understand it as well. Did it, did it go well? If you had to get a one out of ten rating, how how would you give it what what sort of rating would you give it for how well you thought it went? I thought it went pretty well. Like I, I would actually rate it reasonably, sort of seven, seven and a half ish. That's great. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not really phased about public speaking. That that usually goes pretty well for me. My issue, I think, and and one of the other organisers sort of mentioned it to me after the after the talk had finished was that you could tell where my intricate knowledge kind of ended, and that was essentially at the Docker stuff because I don't really use it. I know. I know that it's a tool that's available, but, you know, when I was talking about the built-in PHP server or Valet or LAMP, you know, those are things that I've been using for years and years. So I didn't really have to rely on my, my notes or anything like that. So I could just, you know, talk about it. I knew what dot points were on the slide. So it was really easy to get that up and running. But when I got to Docker, essentially the first slide in the, in the, in the deck for Docker was, I'm not an expert in Docker, but I'll try anyway. So I think I covered it pretty well. But at the same time, I think people got the message about what it was. And, and several people said to me afterwards, you know, that they learned something about Docker because it wasn't what they expected it to be, which I think was good. But in terms of, for me specifically talking about it, I knew that I wasn't, you know, across it as well as I probably could have sure. been, which is, I guess, what you aim for when you want to give a talk. All right. So having listened to Cal Evans, he's obviously a prolific speaker at PHP conferences and things like that. While putting together your talk or uh, before doing your talk, were there any specific tips either from Cal Evans or from other people that you've heard uh, or looked up 
uh, on their blogs or whatever that you were kind of keeping in mind when you were putting together the talk, like any specific tips or things like that for me, other people who are giving a talk for the first time? I think most importantly is you're going to get a reasonably warm reception, especially at a local meetup, if that's where you're going to give your first talk, purely because you're getting up there and you're willing to put in the effort to get up and talk to people about things that you're passionate about. But in terms of sort of building the slide deck, it it really came down to just two or three points on it. You know, the same thing that you get taught from, you know, when you're in school to have two or three or, or four points on the slide and, and talk around them, but don't, you know, don't put a wall of text up on the screen and expect people to read it while you're just reading what the slides are. Yeah, yeah. Cal is working on a, a book at the moment called Spin a Good Yarn, which is all about basically speaking. And so I was getting the emails leading up to that from the mailing list talking about what you should and shouldn't do and things like that. And probably one of the, the key things that came out of that was to essentially tell a story and to reiterate your point as you go along to sort of link all of the pieces together. So it was a matter of things that I spoke about early on once I got to, you know, I was talking about LAMP, but then I was talking about virtual machines and how how kind of involved that is because you have to run all the installation steps one by one. So then when it came time to Homestead, it was a matter of going, look, remember when I said that it takes like a thousand steps to build up a LAMP stack uh, manually? Well, if you're using Homestead, it's three commands. And it was, you know, just that kind of thing, just to tie the whole talk together so it doesn't look like disjointed pieces of information. Mm-hmm. Um, That's good. So that were probably the main things. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to move on here. And I think one of the things we wanted to talk about was the announcements that GitHub made this week. They had, what is it, GitHub Universe, I think, is a conference that they do Mm -hmm, each mm -hmm. year. And so there's a lot of announcements that came out about GitHub, some things that they're working on. Some of the things that came out of that, which I am really excited about, uh, are the pull request reviews. was one was probably my favorite thing out of all of those. So pull request reviews previously... It was a kind of a mess a little bit when you'd have all these comments and anybody could comment and they were disjointed. So if somebody was doing like a code review, they could comment on a line, but it was kind of everybody's comments all in order how they made them. So if somebody was in the middle of a code review and then somebody else jumped in and had something to say as well, their their you know their comment on one of the lines of your code might show up in between comments of somebody else's. So it'd be like, you know, Matt made a comment, Matt made a comment, Taylor made a comment, now Matt made another one. And so there was no way to like package those all together. So now what they have is when you submit a pull request, you can go in and you can comment on a line and it will say, okay, you want to make a single comment or you want to start a review. And you can start a review and it will mark all of those comments as pending. And you can go through and, and continue to make comments on the code until you're done making comments and then you can save review. And when you're saving review, you actually have a couple different options. You can say just make comments. Uh, I think you can say request changes. So you actually, on the comments that you've made, you actually are requesting changes on those. Or you can mark it as approved, I believe, is the three options yeah. that you have there. I think and that's then, right, yeah. Yeah, and then you can also enforce on particular branches. These have to have code reviews, approved code reviews, before they can be merged. Um, which is really, really impressive uh, and super helpful. Just recently, even actually while we were at Laracon this year, uh, our company was going through an audit process where some of the questions that the auditing team was asking is, how do we know 
that the code was reviewed before it got pushed in. I mean, so, you know, they were saying, well, your developer, Jake, has access to merge into the master branch. How do you guarantee that he's being prevented from doing that before there's a code review done? And it was, we had no good answer. There was no way to do that, really. I mean, there there are a couple ways, right? You say, Jake doesn't have access to this, and I had to basically make a fork, and then I had to submit pull requests to the master, or, you know, to the main repository, and then they would be approved, whatever. But it was kind of a mess. So this really improves that. It improves a lot of the, basically introduces new features around code reviews that were never there before that have been sorely needed. So really, really excited about that. One of the other things that they also released is projects. Have you looked at any of that stuff? I've looked at it. And then basically the first thing that I ask you to do is to create a project name. And I go, I don't like creating names for things. And that was as far as I got. (laughs) Okay. Have you looked at anything, uh, any of the features that they've kind of pulled in there? There's like these, I always call it Kanban. I, I, as I was listening to their little screencasting, they called it something else like Kanban or something. So I don't know what's the proper way to say it, but the, I'll just call it Kanban for now. These Kanban boards where you can essentially have different columns where you can have like in development, in progress, released, whatever. And you can take issues from your backlog or whatever of issues and you can drag them into those boards so you can keep track of the progress on those different issues. Yep. I know there was, you know, there was multiple products that would do that for you. Waffle.io was one of those in previously, which I know was a sponsor of GitHub Universe this year. So I think they worked together kind of to move that into the GitHub, you know, site natively. Yeah. But that should be interesting. I know that's going to be helpful for me too, because my manager slash boss, uh, it's helpful for, for me to have him kind of prioritize some of the issues that we have in our backlog for me to work on. And yeah. so for him just to be able to go in there and kind of drag them around instead of having to try and sort by tag or whatever, that should be really helpful. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Was there anything else that actually, let me, there was one other thing which I saw, which was security. So you can, you can force your users who are um, members of like your group, I think, to have like two-factor authentication enabled, which is pretty cool Yep. and important. You know, if you have somebody that has a really weak password that's contributing to your repositories and yeah. that person got hacked, obviously that'd spell really bad news for your repository, especially if it's something that multiple other people are using. So, mm-hmm. yeah, all, all in all, I thought those were pretty cool. Um, but I, I think that GitLabs has kind of also come onto the scene in recent months as well. And it seems like these two, GitHub and GitLabs, are competing, right? And I feel like this is a part of the reason why GitHub is releasing a lot of these new features is because GitLabs is maybe gaining some traction yeah, definitely. I think you probably know a little bit more about that than I do. do what What's GitLab's uh, thing? What are they doing? Yeah, so GitLab recently came, uh, I think last week they announced that they'd raised $20 million in Series B funding, which is basically to fund their, what they call the master plan. And a lot of that is around helping you get from, from an idea to a production environment much quicker. Uh, so they're doing a lot of things around, you know, fostering the ideas, doing issues and planning. They're gonna, they're looking to integrate a terminal basically right in GitLab that'll give you an editor, um, and then you can basically spin up an environment of your application in the browser, not in the browser, but you know, access to that environment in the browser, and then you can just start editing code straight away. So that's a really cool feature. Then they're talking about making committing and then testing code much easier using 
containers. So they've got this whole Docker pipeline for continuous integration. So it's pulling in things like Travis CI that GitHub uses, but baking it right into sort of your code management tool. Um, and then things around reviewing and staging and launching to production and, and things like that. So, I mean, GitLab has been around for a long, long time, you know, several, several years, I guess. And um, it's sort of been in the more recent time, sort of in the last 18 months or so that they really started to push, especially with their open source. And I think they're really starting to push GitHub to, you know, they're, they're no longer the, the big boy or they're still the big boy, but but they're getting, you know, the push from GitLab to sort of bring out new features and be more competitive in those those offerings. So where where GitHub is known quite a lot for its, you know, open source ties, GitLab is gets most of its business, most of its monetary income from on-premise, you know, behind the firewall kind of installations. And then they use that to drive their open source efforts. So probably a lot of people will know that about six months or so, maybe less ago, GitLab announced that they were going to offer unlimited free private repositories to anyone that was signing up to GitLab.com. And that was a big pusher for a lot of people, a lot of freelancers even, that maybe have one or two private repositories that don't really want to justify the expense of paying GitHub to get, you know, 10 for $7 a month or whatever it was. They don't need it. They didn't, they weren't looking to spend the money. So they're looking at other things, you know, maybe um, GoGit or or even, um, you know, Bitbucket. But now GitLab's done it where, you know, for nothing, you can get unlimited private repositories. You get all of the containerized stuff. Essentially, everything that is part of GitLab's enterprise offering is also available in GitLab. So a lot of people, I think, might have been looking at and migrating across to that purely for the fact that if you're working on stuff for yourself, you don't necessarily want the whole world to see it. So private repos was sort of the thing that I guess brought everyone out of the woodwork and started looking at GitLab more seriously. We've actually been using on-premises at work for as long as I've been there. So help me understand that. So GitLab has a local sort of, not client, but an application that you can install on your local servers there that acts as a Git host. Would that be the way to say it? Okay, so like you can make a new remote, like you say, like Git remote origin, but you're pointing it not at GitHub, but at your internal GitLab installation. Correct. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's their open source, or sorry, their on-premises offering is essentially GitLab.com, but you can host it on your own server, and that's free and it's open source. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I can see why that'd be attractive, especially for enterprisey sort of, or I mean, not even necessarily. You don't have to be massive for that to be a benefit. I can see us using that might have to look into that yeah especially under github's old pricing model we were paying something in the order of 400 dollars a month for all of the users and all of the private repositories that we're using yeah but we needed to use it because we couldn't give our offshore teams access behind the firewall to our gitlab install not without you know going through the whole process of getting them set up on vpn and doing all the active directory stuff so using github was was the easy way but now that we don't have those offshore teams anymore it's much easier for us to bring all of GitLab in-house um, especially with all of the testing stuff you know you can define in a very similar way that you do with Travis your your configuration to spin up uh, to you know to basically build your 
testing environment and then spin up and run those tests and make sure that you know when you're committing code that it all passes that passes your tests yeah very cool we've been using travis ci as well as style ci recently um which style ci shout out graham campbell is freaking amazing love that thing and i'm so glad we put it on there i would not want to be without it now it catches so many little things that are like oh yeah yeah forgot about that the space between the if and the and the paren there you know so many little things that just help to keep your code base clean and I love that it will inspect it and tell you it fails, and then it'll give you a fixed PR. Oh, fix that. Click yeah. fix PR, apply it, and done. It's super easy. So thank you, Graham Campbell. I want to keep this quick because I, I just heard you mention it. You said Active Directory. Do you guys use Active Directory in your building to manage users? Yeah, we're a big, big window shop. Okay, but you have a Mac. Yeah. Okay. and how- not part of Active Directory. Okay, though. so you don't authenticate into the Active Directory, though, when you get there in the day. No. Okay. No. All right, so here's the challenge we had. We are we are a big Windows, you know, shop, not shop, but everything runs on Windows, whatever, which is why I said in previous episodes we had to use IIS because we're using Windows, whatever, right? One of the unique challenges we've had is we did not want to have our people have to have a secondary password to log into the applications that we're building internally. So we had to use a library ADL app in order to be able to authenticate to Active Directory for our applications. Have you ever had, have you ever used that before? I haven't used that, um, but I have at a previous job, we, we started to roll out Active Directory across the organization. And yeah, we, we ended up having to write it some kind of custom adapter that one of the other developers did to essentially hook in and grab all of the, I don't know what they're called in Active Directory land, but basically all of your, all your roles. Yeah. And things like that. Your groups, so, the groups that you belong to. I can't remember what they're called. Yeah. But. but yeah, I mean, once once it's done, it's it's done and it sort of just sits there and ticks along. Yeah. But if you if you have to, you know, doing it the first time is a bit of a pain. Yeah, exactly. So this, this uh, actually yesterday, I think, I had built a kind of a, an authentication microservice that will take your credentials and will log you into, you know, will log you into the server and then will create basically a cached object of all the roles that you get, who your manager is, what your extension is, what your initials are, what your username is, all that stuff. We'll cache it in a table, give it an expiration date, assign you a token, and then we'll return all that stuff with a JSON payload with the token. And then we set that token on the, the user's machine. And then it's across the subdomain. So any of our apps come as a subdomain. So so like, for instance, I don't know, Glacier is the name of one of our apps, glacier.mysite.com, whatever. And then mm-hmm. you have, you know, something else, calculator.myapp.com, whatever. So that cookie is assigned to the root domain so that all of those apps, regardless of which one you're on, can grab that cookie and do a token login. So you log in once and you're logging in across all of our applications, which has been really, really cool. So we got that deployed and on Forge and Envoyer yesterday. That was pretty cool. So it's really helpful. Single sign-on across all of our applications, which has been really nice for our users. So if any of you guys and girls listening out there have struggled with Active Directory integration, you are not alone. Hit me up on Twitter. We've got some experience with it. So I'm sure I can help you out. Nice. We are at 28 minutes, which this is for a short episode. We're doing pretty good here. So there's a couple of things I could talk about that I might actually push to later episodes. I'll just mention them real quick. One of the things that I've been working on and just interested in 
this last week. Um, if you're like me, Michael, you can maybe speak to this. Whenever I have to do a sort that is not part of a database query or part of a library that offers the sort function, <laughs> I like stack overflow that thing immediately every time. I can never remember how to do yeah. sorting stuff. Like it's always one of those black box, like stack overflow, copy paste, hopefully this works, sort of like what the heck am I doing? And you know, I learn it and then it's like I forget it before the next time I have to do it. So um, yeah. this last time I learned how to do it using usort, whatever, and I, I figured out what it's doing and how I, you know, how I need to handle it. But being kind of a math brain kind of guy, my first idea was that it takes this kind of the function closure and applies it to each one of the elements and then switches their arrangement and then just goes from the first of the collection that you're dealing with to the, to the last or the first of the array that you're dealing with to the last. But then I, I figured out like that wouldn't possibly work because that would order one of the items correctly, but it wouldn't order the rest of them correctly. So I kind of did a deep dive into like, how is this actually working? And it turns out that PHP behind the scenes is using an algorithm called quicksort, which is pretty cool. You can look it up on Wikipedia, but I am, I think, going to do a blog post about it and possibly even a little screencast or something. Since I don't have a PHP user group to do a talk for, I might do a little screencast or something. It's very, very interesting and really cool kind of how it works behind the scenes. So I've been looking at that a little bit uh, recently and that's been that's been kind of fun. Is there anything you've been working on recently that we can squeeze in here in the last minute and a half before we... Um, yeah, well, I can, I can touch on. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work recently with um, API Blueprint and Dread and basically building an API from the documentation up. Uh, so shout out to Phil Sturgeon and his Build Your APIs You Won't Hate. And their Slack channel was actually really helpful as well if, if you need help with getting um, up and running with building APIs the nice way. So it's been an interesting experience trying to wrangle sort of Laravel to work with database seeders with Dread and all that kind of stuff. It's been a good experience. I got to the point yesterday where it seemed like the API was working from within the browser. If I went to the you know, URL for an endpoint, it would give me the expected data. But when I was running using Dread to, to run the automated test, it would just give me a 302 redirect to log in. So I'm not sure what happened there, but then it was time to go home. So <laughs> that'll be a Monday problem. Understand that. Well, I call it future Michael's problem. <laughs> future Michael's problem. Like that. That's awesome. Cool, man. Well, hey, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, if you like the show, feel free to rate it up on iTunes uh, or your podcatcher of choice. This is episode 11. So you can find the show notes for this episode at northmeetsouth.audio slash 11. If you have any questions or would like to give us uh, some suggestions for things to talk about in our next episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter or follow us at North South Audio. Michael, thanks so much for taking some time to talk, man. It's always fun. All right, thanks, All right, buddy. Jay. Take it easy. Bye.